Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Mornings with Carmen on the 22nd of June. And again, from the sound of my voice, uh, I am decidedly not Carmen, not no. Carmen LaBerge. No. I am Dr. Peter Kapsner filling in this morning as Carmen has a well-deserved break. And uh, Paul, I, I realized as I was coming in this morning, I will never be able to say good morning the way that Carmen says good morning. It is, it is a very unique ability that she has to to welcome our listeners from all around the country well, into the show. Though? I mean, she's got several. I mean, I, I There's a lot of different iterations, I, right? I, there, yeah, so there's good morning. I mean, she does that You one. do that pretty well. I, well. We should have had you greet the listeners this morning uh, with, with, with the Carmen LeBurge uh, version of good morning. Just walking us to this day, yet another day <laughs> that the Lord has made, it's truly. It's really not so. that hard. It, I, it's actually very similar to something I saw on old-time radio or whatever it, or heard on old time radio so all right making me sound old now thanks a lot <laughs> now you got me i got you well you know it's earlier getting started here again it's nice to be back in studio uh, with you we are uh, practicing uh, obviously appropriate social, social distancing, distancing here, yeah. you know i think a lot of our listeners probably can sympathize with the idea of it's just it's been nice to have at least some of the restrictions relaxed so we can be back in public. I mean, we are made in God's image, made mm-hmm. to be relational beings. And, and it really begins to take a toll on us when not only are we understandably forced inside and, and understandably forced to yeah. distance ourselves from one another, but then you combine that with if you, if you are at home and you're watching the news and, of course, the events that you've covered so well here on the morning show uh, that are going around our country that are so disturbing with with uh, the racial tensions that have been below the surface, sometimes popping above the surface, but now have really exploded on the scene. And, and I don't know about your conversations that you're having with people, Paul, but I think one of the sort of the, the main things that I see that the sort of the spirit of the day is one of being disheartened. There's just it, there's a fatigue that goes with all of this that is difficult and, and it's hard to process on a day in and day out basis. Disheartened is one of the things I'm seeing. Another thing I see is people trying to find their way of figuring it out. And, and they're, they're trying to analyze things. And unfortunately, they're not getting their because I'm doing I think I'm doing my job well in trying to keep an eye on things, what's happening here and help Carmen do that. People are making statements on social media or yeah. whatever. It's like, no, that's not how it works. No, that's not what's really happening. But it, it's it's hard to break through because people want to believe something and they want to, yeah, they're so hooked on their right. truth and their facts. Right. So. And social media certainly is a place that hardly is ever going to be an uplifting environment no. and, and, and the chaos that's there. And so unlike social media, <laughs> I, I sort of have had uh, the, the, a passage from Galatians rattling around in my heart and in my mind this last week. And, uh, and it comes from Galatians chapter 6. And I came into the studio this morning, opened up the studio Bible, and sure enough, actually that passage is highlighted. So there it seems appropriate to read as we get started this morning on this morning show. And it's uh, Galatians chapter nine, ver- or, yeah, chapter six, verse nine. It says, so even though we might be disheartened, let's not get tired of doing what is good. Don't get discouraged and give up, for we will reap a harvest of blessing at the appropriate time. And in some of the translations of this passage, it'll actually say, don't lose heart. And 
in that uh, first century world, when Paul was using that language about lose heart, it was often applying to women who might be in labor and the difficulty of the process Mm. of giving birth. And Jesus even talks about the idea that his second coming is often used analogous to birth pangs, that he is coming in. There's just a difficulty before the new world is going to come. We don't know how long this difficulty is going to last. This could be another uh, century or two or three before Mm -hmm. Jesus returns. But in all of this, as we're listening all around the country this morning and we're trying to get up again yet today and follow Jesus, let's not lose heart as we walk out this life together. That's what we'll do here this morning is we've got a lot of different guests coming in to talk about the news, talk about different dimensions of life as believers. And uh, up next, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the events of COVID-19 obviously going on. Uh, over the weekend with a Trump rally and sort of where we are with masks. And we'll be talking with Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University, epidemiologist, enjoys uh, thinking about infectious disease of all things, and he'll help us walk through some of the <laughs> Enjoy. issues. Enjoy. I wonder if Zach will agree with Well, that we'll one. ask him here in just a minute. So welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. Well, Dr. Zach Jenkins, I don't know where Paul Pro comes up with this music, 98.6, but I can't think of a better lead-in for you as a person who deals with this. Uh, good morning, Zach. I'm glad that uh, you're joining us here this morning on Mornings with Carmen. Good morning. So, so do you actually enjoy talking about epidemiology and infectious disease? Does this sort of get you up in the morning? I, I admit I'm a bit of a sucker for those movies like Contagion. And when, you, and when you see sort of these pandemics go around, I mean, it does hold a bit of intrigue. You must have at least some level of interest when you get up in the morning thinking about these things. Well, I have to, uh, you know, not only do I, I have to teach it with my students actually at the hospital, my specialty is infectious disease. So I'm dealing with these patients on a regular basis that have a variety of different infections. (laughs) So you get up in the morning and and obviously you're thinking about uh, where we are in this pandemic and obviously a lot of controversy as well this last week in terms of the the reestablishment of President Trump's rallies and uh, the stadium was not close to full over the weekend in which he gave this sort of rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma. But when you watch it through the lens of your practice, of your discipline, what do you see when you see these crowds, some of whom have masks, some of whom don't? How are you evaluating the situation? Well, I think if anything, it definitely speaks to the fact that there's not a lot of solidarity behind how we should be handling this virus, um, the severity of it, where we're at with things. There's a lot of distrust that we're seeing. And so I think those are just visual representations of that. Um, and the other thing I think it just highlights is just how conflicting there, the, the amount of information is that's out there right now. And what do, what do we do with that? I know we've been talking with my family about it. It seems like every other day new research or different research comes out, and there really is a lot of conflicting information making its way through news outlets and through different kind of scientific journals. How, how do we process and how do we discern those things that we should pay attention to and the practices we should or shouldn't do? You know, that's an excellent question. And I think one of the biggest challenges that, that we have right now is this is science in real time. And science is usually a pretty slow and deliberate process. So, you know, when it, when there's a study that goes on, it's pretty rare that a study is published within a year, as an example, or within six months. It usually takes a longer period of time to have that vetted out appropriately, have it peer reviewed. And then people kind of take it, they interpret it, they put it in light of all the other evidence and they slowly adapt it. What's happening now in, in the world of medicine is this stuff is coming out a, a, mile, a mile a minute. 
And, and, and in actuality, the problem that that's created is there's a lot of issues with some of the research that has been published or shared. Not all of it has had the same rigor or the same uh, vetting process that, that we've used before because we're in such a, a rush to get this information out as quickly as we can. And we're certainly going to talk in just a minute about some of that research coming out that really made its way through our public, and that was about mask wearing and, and some articles that needed to be retracted about some of the reports that were published. But before we get there, Zach, I'd be curious. I, I know that there is a sense in which the flu it tends to sort of abate during the summer months because of the heat, and then it reemerges in the winter. And, and there's a lot of thought that we're making COVID-19 analogous, again, to the flu, and that it's going to abate during the summer, but then it's going to, we're going to have this huge second wave in the fall. But what we're seeing right now as states open, especially southern states where there's a lot of heat, we're seeing that the cases are beginning to spike. Is this telling us that maybe COVID-19 is not going to work in the same patterns as the flu? And how do we understand the potential for a second wave in light of that? You know, it, you know it's a good question. If you look at the cases that they've seen significant spikes, um, they have been either in the southwest or south. Uh, so you've seen huge spikes in Arizona, Florida. You've started to see some trends in Texas, South Carolina, et cetera. And so that leaves a lot of people to wonder, what's the source of that? Um, there are a few challenges. So, so if we look at this like every other coronavirus that we've seen before, uh, they typically do abate by the summer. And so there's been a lot of hope. I've, I've been hopeful that we might see some trends like that. However, one thing that we've kind of also seen is Brazil. If you look at Brazil, they're right along the equator. And this is actually their winter, which mm -hmm. is still very warm. But they're seeing a massive spike in, in, in numbers of cases. So there are a lot, of, a lot of reasons those things could be, be occurring. But it leaves us to kind of ask the question, well, is heat or humidity really as impactful as we thought? Um, the one thing that people have started to say, and again, this kind of remains to be seen, is, is maybe it's more humidity versus the heat that would allow more of a transfer of the virus, right? So like the more humid of an environment, the more likely transmission could occur versus the more arid. But you look at an outlier like Arizona with all these, these spikes uh, that we're seeing there, and, and it kind of makes us wonder how true is that. So we're kind of all over the board with that right now, and I think it may just be too early to tell. And as you sort of evaluate where we are with this virus, is it is it something that you that you tend to think that we're on a trend towards learning to live with the virus? Are we going to need to lock down again in various places? Is it that infectious and that virulent and that devastating? How, how do we begin to process as the data is coming in and we are learning more in terms of the new cases coming out? Where, where do you see that leading from a policy standpoint? So I think it's going to be something that we're going to have to learn to live with without a doubt. Um, and I, I think everyone on some level if you believe the virus is, ha is happening, then, then you're on, on board with that idea, that you have to learn to live with it. The question is what that looks like, and the question is how serious of an issue it is. Um, if you look at all the different data and you look at only patients that have had symptomatic cases, um, just looking at that group, the mortality rate has been about 5 to 6% in that group alone. Now, if we look at every person that's been exposed to the virus or we look at mortality rates for the entire country, obviously those numbers come down a bit. But it is several orders of magnitude greater as far as mortality goes than our typical flus are. And that's that's been pretty truthful from the beginning. Uh, we know that, as everyone probably is aware of, there are a lot of people that are at higher risk. And so that, that becomes the question, what, what does life look like for them? And so I think policy is really going to drive us to kind of consider 
Um, maybe there are some standard things we might be able to do on a regular basis to kind of live with the virus, but also uh, manage, or I guess better manage long-term public health through things like making sure the economy is optimized, et cetera. And where are we in terms of therapeutics? I know we're a long ways away from vaccine, but it seemed to me that there's some news in this last week that there's at least some hope that the the length and duration of the symptoms of the virus may be um, mitigated by two or three or four days. Are we seeing some hope and some therapeutics here? So so the biggest thing, which we've known about for several weeks, has been remdesivir. Um, and, and the company that produced that and actually had a lot back for sort of reserve use, emergency use, we'll say, uh, they've donated all of it to the federal government, and by the end of this month, the government will have actually distributed the entirety of that supply. Uh, so I'll tell you, you know, at my hospital, for example, we have a very, very, very limited supply, and so it's this dangerous question of, well, who gets it and who doesn't? Because the data has been pretty true that it does reduce symptoms uh, and can shorten the length of the illness, and for someone that's there for weeks, that's pretty significant. Um, but again, it's a very limited supply. So, so they're trying to ramp that up. There has been some good news for people with severe infections in that there's a steroid called dexamethasone. And it's been shown for people that are dependent on some kind of respiratory support, whether it's oxygen or whether it's ventilators, that can actually decrease mortality. They think if it, it's about every, if you treat eight people, about one of those people will actually survive because of that. So that's a very positive piece of evidence. However, that's only in those severe cases. So we don't really have something for just the, the general public that doesn't have necessarily that severe disease yet. Mm, it's Dr. Zach Jen Jenkins from Cedarville University. is a professor of infectious diseases. We're talking a little bit about some updates on therapeutics and mask wearing around COVID-19 and, and where we see in the second spike that may or may not be coming. And Zach, when we come back in just a minute, let's get in a bit to this mask wearing conversation in which there is some debate back and forth in terms of whether we should be wearing masks or we shouldn't be. And some of the science seems to be conflicting on that. So I want to ask you about that next year when we come back in just a minute on Mornings with Carmen. Together. It is about 21 minutes after the hour. I'm Dr. Peter Kapsner filling in for the day for Carmen LeBurge, and we're having a conversation with Dr. Zach Jenkins around some of the different dimensions and, and news coming out on COVID-19. And uh, Zach, I understand that you are a baseball guy, and we are, of course, watching the Major League Baseball season in, in terms of it's hanging in the balance right now. And the question is, is will they go ahead and start the season at maybe 50, 60, 70 games, or will they not? And what you, is it possible for them to actually quarantine themselves enough through all these parks to, to stay safe enough to have a season? You know, I, I think there's always, there's a will, there's a way. I think it just will look a lot different than what we've seen in the past. So we may not have stadiums quite as full, um, depending on what state mandates are in place, et cetera. And there may be some recommendations that, along the lines of things like wearing masks for people coming into and out of the park, um, which is independent of when they're sitting down when they might be allowed to not wear masks. That's just a guess. Yeah, and in terms of wearing masks, and that's some of what you and I have highlighted a bit this morning, but let's get into that a little bit. There's a lot of conflicting research out there about the effectiveness of wearing a mask. And so there is an article retracted here recently that really did have an impact on public policy in terms of our understanding of wearing these masks. And now that data has been called into question. Where are we in this mask wearing conversation? Because I walk into some stores, Zach, and everybody, it seems like, are, is wearing a mask. And I walk into other stores and there isn't any mask anywhere. And so there's a lot of conflict in this. 
So, so the article that you're referencing that was retracted, um, there, there were some real flaws with some of its design. Um, basically, what it did is it looked at uh, different policies around the country, around the world, really, as far as masks go. And then it tried to basically infer that less cases were seen in places that had these mask policies. Well, doing that in a vacuum is problematic when you look at data that way because there are a lot of other policies and measures being put into place in those same locations. And so you're kind of ignoring all those other contributing factors. So that's that's an issue. Um, and so, so really the people that call for the retraction ha have supported the idea that masks are absolutely effective. The data is there to show it. Uh, the, the averages tend to say something about 70 to 90% of cases may or, or of, uh, transmission may be prevented by two different parties in it when they're interacting with each other wearing a mask. So that's that's encouraging. So on the mask front being effective, that's helpful. The problem is that this particular article has been shared around social media, et cetera, and has basically been put out there by people that are advocating for saying none of the other things matter. If people only wear masks, that, that's all you need. So all these other different measures that are being put in place have no impact. And that's that's been the big issue with the paper. And, and the other thing that that is problematic with the papers. It infers that the virus is spread via airborne routes of transmission, so really, really small particles. When in actuality, the majority of the evidence out there lends itself to the fact that it seems to be bigger droplets. And there are some smaller particles, but it's bigger droplets. So all that to say, when you, there's this push to get these articles out there quickly, some of the safeguards are being removed in cases or, or being relaxed is a better way to put that. And, and so things are coming out that we normally would vet out through a more laborious process. It's very challenging to do in a very short period of time, but the evidence is just, it's overwhelming with the information that's coming out there. And, and a lot of it is not necessarily well controlled. Um, and social media, I think, exacerbates a lot of that. Well, and I think, Zach, too, that uh, some of the conversations I have are people are at least mildly frustrated with the idea that we hear our leaders talk about we're going to follow the science, we're going to follow the data, we're going to follow the facts, and we're going to construct our social policy based on that. But it, but if the science is at least to some degree ambiguous or a bit of a moving target or changes, we're talking about massive policy decisions that affect a lot, millions, hundreds of millions of people, even globally. And yet when that changes, then what do we do from a policy standpoint uh, how do we understand the situation? How do we move forward in terms of constructing policy in the lit, uh, in light of the shifting data? So, so I'll liken it to to what I deal with in medicine. So, as this as this COVID situation has been evolving, we we had a lot of information early to suggest that certain therapies were better, and so we were trying these things on patients and actually fighting to get very short supplies of, of different medications that were out there to do these things. Well, as the data has continuously evolved, we've seen that some of these things that have been postulated aren't effective. Um, we've seen some things that are being put out there very similarly with, with bad science um, being used a lot by, by different institutions, but now we're having to pull that therapy back. So it's kind of similar to governmental policy in that sense, where it's impacting lives. Um, obviously, we have to go with where data leaves us, leads us, but I think what we really need to do is while well, there's a rush to get all these different things done, we need to stop and we need to think things through. We need to look at the data and more carefully analyze things before we just leap at every new piece of information that comes out there. Um, we need to be better critics of what we're presented with 
before we we trust it as as immediate truth. That that's the best thing I I, I could encourage you. I, I have a, a colleague of mine. He refers it as being a uh, someone who doesn't just reads a- abstracts when it comes to these mm. journals that get published. Yeah. Someone that actually goes in and, and tries to critique it. So stop stop with the headlines and dig deeper is the best way to think about it. Mm, that is a disappearing art these days is to get into it and thoughtfully work through some things when we're sort of having headlines screaming at us all day long. Well, Zach, we've got to leave it right there, but appreciate the wisdom and the insight as we continue to walk out this journey of uncertainty in the months and probably even years ahead as we both learn to, to have some therapeutics for the virus, but learn to live with it as well. So have a great day. Uh, well, I'm sure we'll check in about baseball in the future. I know you're a supporter <laughs> of the Cleveland Indians. I'm here in the Minneapolis area, so we can talk on air like this as friends, Zach, but off the air, it's going to get a little ugly. <laughs> All right. You have a great day. Yeah, you too. Thanks. Hey, we'll be back here on Mornings and Carmen in just a little bit. Our next guest is going to be Stephen Mansfield, who's a best-selling author, New York Times best-selling author, and he's got a new book titled Men on Fire, which is restoring the forces that forge noble manhood. And Stephen and I are going to have a conversation about the importance of that and even the role of men in helping fix some of the ills that we have in our society. You know, Paul, waking up to some more difficult news this morning and the this conversation that we're having and the tension that we have around races. And, of course, we see in NASCAR that the only African-American NASCAR driver, a guy by the name of Bubba Wallace, came into his garage to, only to find a noose there, which is such a symbol, obviously. Actually, I heard he didn't actually see the noose. It was he, members of his team that saw that. They reported it to NASCAR. Yeah. I mean, thankfully so, he didn't. Yeah, but so still. trouble on every level. I, this is, we, we started the show with the idea that it would be understandable if we're disheartened these days as we wake mm-hmm. up and greet the day and, and how do we even process the world around us. So I just want to read one more time from this Galatians 6 passage where it says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And it's such the message of the people of the scriptures. They were living in such troubled times as well in first century Roman Empire. And Paul continues to admonish them and encourage them. You know, it is going to matter at the end of the day. Our, our little acts that we do in that, that can contrast these horrific acts that we see around us really ultimately will lead to the return of Jesus's beautiful kingdom as well, in which everything will be established and restored. So let's stay with that this morning as we're listening around our the Midwest region, around the country, on Mornings with Carmen here, that we don't ever tire of doing good. And I know that Stephen Mansfield will be encouraging to us here in just a moment as we talk about the role that men can play in this ongoing sort of crisis in our country and, and maybe can bring some good into the midst of that as well. So stay with us here on Mornings with Carmen. Up next is Stephen Mansfield. I've never met a young person that didn't want to be cool. But in cyber world, that's certainly gotten a lot of kids into trouble. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Websites like YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter offer teens a place to post pictures, videos, comments, rants, you name it. They can share whatever they want with whomever they want. And often, the illusion of privacy makes kids feel safe posting things that they would never share in real life. Keep an eye on your teen's social media use. Let him know that you'll be viewing his Facebook profile, Tumblr account, and any other place he can share content online. The photos and comments he posts are a lot like tattoos. They're hard to get rid of, even if they seem cool at the time. Let's help our teens live with no regrets. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to parentingtodaysteens.org.
Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. I am Dr. Peter Kapsner filling in for the day and actually the next couple of days as Carmen is gone this week on vacation. And we're delighted at this time to be joined by New York Times bestselling author Stephen Mansfield, who released a new book titled Men on Fire, Restoring the Forces That Forge Noble Manhood. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning. Good to be with you. Yeah, you too. And this sounds like this book that you released, before we get into some of the content of that, is that this is not necessarily a sequel to a book that you released a couple years ago, but it, it begins to fill in what you saw, some of the gaps of a book called Building Your Band of Brothers. So tell us a little bit about the previous book, Building Your Band of Brothers, and how that led to this new book, Men on Fire. Well, I actually have written two books before this one about men, and I'm very grateful for them and the impact they've had. One's called Mansfield's Book of Manly Men. Uh, put out by HarperCollins, and it really it, it really had an impact at the time. Glenn Beck picked it up and bragged about it, and so on. Uh, and then I wrote, and then I realized when I finished that book that there was something I hadn't said about men bonding together. So I wrote Building Your Band of Brothers. Uh, and both of them have done well, and I've been very pleased. They're movement books, and they're all over the world. But uh, I still, as I spoke with men, as I sat with them, as I you know spoke to groups of men around the world, I just began to realize there was something missing in the souls of men. And I began to think of them in terms of fires, dynamos on the inside of them, that even if when they were pursuing being good and noble and righteous men, and they were pursuing God, and they were trying to model their lives on, on Christian virtues of manhood, that there was something missing. And I came up with these seven fires, so to speak. Um, that I that I felt like uh, you know not a man's not going to be missing all seven, uh, but but in this list of seven, uh, men would find what was what they were missing from their souls that had in a sense leached noble manhood, righteous manhood, the best they could be from their lives, and so that's why I wrote the book. Hmm. And Stephen, what do you account for some of this absence of this fire? Do we see that men just haven't had role models? Is it the breakdown of the family? What are some of the forces that have contributed to this? Well, it certainly is the, the broken families. Uh, as a result of that, many men, many young men don't have models in the family. Uh, it's certainly you know, the societal messages, as I say in the book, you know, that models on television, some guy sitting at a pole shoving 20 in some, 20s in some girl's underwear, uh, or, or, or some guy just being an idiot, just a fool, just nobody you want to be. Uh, rarely are there models. Uh, and so I, I think that most young men uh, grow up without anybody talking to them about noble manhood, without anybody initiating them into the culture of men, because there often isn't a culture of noble manhood around them. And so I'm urging men to build that culture and initiate the young into it. You know, there's that great African proverb that goes, if we do not initiate the boys, they will burn the village down just to feel its, its warmth. And that is, I think, what's going on around the world. Look at what's happening with young men in the streets, young men in ISIS, young men in gangs. Uh, I think that that's ex that African proverb is very true. So uh, I'm urging guys to build a culture of noble manhood, uh, speak to men in manly terms. But, but I got to tell you, even among guys who are already pursuing noble manhood and in men's groups in their churches and what have you, uh, some of these fires are missing. And so I'm excited to see what's going to happen when they light up with what the message of this book is. Mm, yeah, you bring up the idea of initiation, Stephen. And I, uh, many years ago when I was doing my doctoral research, it was actually on that topic of the lack of initiation globally and especially in Western individualistic culture where there isn't that sense that you're part of something bigger, that you're initiated into a bigger purpose than yourself. And there is such a hyper-focus on making your own way and building your own resume and, and being independent from other people. If you don't belong to a bigger story, if you're not initiated into something that's beyond yourself, that has to also account for some of the fires that you and I are going to discuss in just a, a minute that are absent from the lives of men. Well, there's no question about it. In fact, my book, Mansfield's Book of Manly Men, uh, I start with a story 
of me being in the Middle East. I was working with the Kurds extensively as, at the time as I, as I do now. And I got stuck in Damascus and some friends took me to a dinner. And while there, they asked me if I was, if I had a son. And when I said yes, they began to celebrate me uh, as newly arrived to the fellowship of fatherhood. Hmm. And I got to tell you, it was the only, I, I tell the story in the book, I'll just condense it here. It was the first time in my life I'd ever been welcomed to any phase of manhood in my entire life. You know, typical American, you know, grow up military, high school, college, et cetera, marriage, kids, but never had a group of men ever sat down and celebrated any, me at any phase in my development as a man. And it changed me. And I came back to the States and I began to think about the fact we don't have anything like that. You know, mm -hmm. we don't have the bar mitzvah that our Jewish friends have uh, where we where we celebrate, welcome a 13 year old boy to the, to be a son of the covenant, you know, and he takes responsibilities within the community. We don't have that kind of stuff. So I've been urging men to build it ever since. I think it's essential. And I've watched it absolutely change lives when a, when a group of men welcome the young men with, through ritual and maybe some struggle and requirements and some things they have to achieve uh, into the fellowship of manhood and teach them what that means. Absolutely transforming. Yeah, it really does. I know that uh, some of the process of initiation is is that you take young men or young women out of their social context and you really do enter into a time of, of training, of teaching, of development, and it's sort of called this liminal space where you're no longer what you were as a, as a young boy or young girl, and you're no longer yet where you're going to be. But in that space, there, there uh, is a lot of the teaching and training that happens, and then you're welcomed back into the community in a different way. And the importance of that for our young people, and our boys in particular, who just don't have those models, I would have to think that given a generation where we could initiate our young men into proper manhood, that, that it could really change things. Well, absolutely. And by the way, I don't think it ought to just happen when they're transitioning into young adulthood or, right. you know, out of, out of childhood. And I'm, I'm not correcting what you're saying. I'm just saying I, I think I needed it when I was graduating from high school yes. and transitioning to college. Why couldn't a group of men I'd walked with for years uh, sat me down? Now, I grew up as a military brat, so we moved all the time. I'm not blaming anybody. But how great if a group of men had done it then? Or when I, when I graduated from college and was transitioning into young professional or, when I, or the night before I got married or the, a couple of days before uh, or, or when I had children. You know, my father-in-law, my, my Texas father-in-law humorously said to me before I got married, here's my one advice for you. Women don't mix. And he was he was being funny. It's the only advice I ever got from any man for being married. Uh, now, you know, you need to know a lot more than that. So so I'm saying we ought to have this culture of rituals going forward throughout our lives. And all of us need it. You know, all of us need it. Uh, and I think it could be a powerful and transforming thing. And I'm seeing that happen, by the way, in, in this in this noble man's men's movement that's happening around the world. And it's pretty exciting. Mm, this is New York Best Times bestselling author Stephen Mansfield. And Stephen, when we come back from a short break, I want to get into some of the fires that are missing in the lives of men and how it is that they can be reignited and reestablished and what that can mean for the future here as we continue to walk out life together as men and women and, and walking it out in healthy ways. So stay with us here. More to come on Mornings with Carmen with author Stephen Mansfield. And the book is Men on Fire, Restoring the Forces that Forge Noble Manhood. It's like We are chatting with author Stephen Mansfield here on Mornings with Carmen this morning in the book Men on Fire and some of the missing fires that men may have today. And Stephen, love to get into the book a little bit now here. And, and you talk about seven fires that may be missing in the hearts of men, that men from a good-hearted place really want to do what's right and they really want, want to move forward with sort of their duty, obligation, all of that. But it might be coming from a place of absence. How do we go ahead and begin to reignite these fires? What are we missing here? 
Well, hopefully men will read the chapters of the book and, and read my descriptions of what, uh, how we're made for these fires, so to speak, and, uh, and how they, how they uh, shape our lives. Uh, for example, one of the uh, fires that I talk about is the fire heritage. Well, we don't tend to have fathers these days who pass on the family lore, you know, sit us down and tell us what grandfather did, great grandfather, or, or e even be proud of their, your people. You know, you are, you are a part of the great native peoples here in this country, or you are a great African-American uh, descendant. You know, tell the stories, tell the lore. So I tell in a chapter called Heritage um, about what heritage ought to mean in the lives of a man, a life of a man, how we're made for it, how we're made to know what's come before us, how we're made to have who our people are and who our what our family line did uh, and what it meant uh, live in our souls. And I even tell the story of a, of a gentleman, a friend of mine, I'll tell it very, very briefly, 20 seconds, um, in, in which his he had had no sense of heritage at all. His family had either been migrant workers or and his father was in prison. He just he just was a, he'd become a successful businessman, but he had no sense of anything that came from his family line. And he uh, went and found out about something that his father had done in prison that he didn't even know about until after his father died. Mm. And he decided at my urging to take that one little gem <laughs> and make it make it a basis for uh, make it the heritage he needed. And he started um, the, the, the story is told more fully in the book, but he started uh, a pretty major organization uh, all based on this one thing his father did in prison that he now this gentleman is now taken as his heritage, part, a major part of his heritage coming from his family line. Now, other men, you know, I grew up in a military home with uh, generations of military men. So believe me, heritage was 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 fed to me in great big doses. Every man's going to have a different story. But men need to have that living in their souls, uh, whatever their ethnicity, whatever their background, however thin the story may be from their family, they need to have it. And I think that this is an example uh, of how a man can rekindle what's going on, uh, what, what's happening in the soul and, and the, the fires you ought to have burning there. Mm, it speaks to where possible, too, for grandparents to be involved in the lives of their grandkids, not just as care providers and caretakers, but really as keepers of the story, right? No question about it. The keepers of the story. It's a great phrase. Uh, and that, for, in fact, that's actually the translation of an ancient Celtic word that there were people responsible to keep the stories alive. I mean, we we sometimes laugh at old Uncle Joe, you know, who's telling the stories <laughs> from World War Two. But we ought to be listening. We ought to be paying attention. What comes down through the family line? You know, my my father uh, was a, was a, was a decorated hero who came out of the Vietnam war. Now, my daughter recently had gone through, has gone through some, uh, challenges, uh, not, not horrible, but just, it's the kind of difficulties we run into in life. And she's literally turned to me and say, look, if granddad can survive that battle in Vietnam for which he was decorated, I can get through this. I mean, she literally thinks of herself, my, my 30 year old daughter, uh, living in New York as an extension uh, of what her grandfather did. Well, that's the way it ought to be in the souls of men. Uh, we ought to think in terms of the heritage that's that's made a deposit, a deposit in our souls. And so you can understand if I have an hour or two to talk to men about just this subject, it starts to change them. And all of us have a heritage. If, if even if your family, even if your biological family is a long line of nothing but you know criminals and thieves, there's still the beautiful beauty of the of of your heritage as a as a people. Uh, there's still the beauty of the nation you live in. There's a way you can draw from the past to make a deposit in your soul and ignite those fires that you're meant to live out. Yeah, I'm always reminded of Hebrews 11 for those people that maybe don't have that family heritage that they want to lean into, but still there's this whole heritage of faith that we walk out and it says, therefore, since we've been surrounded 
by such a great cloud of witnesses. We we are part of a much bigger story, and that is so important to see yourself anchored in that bigger story as opposed to the idea of, hey, I'm just living life as a fragmented individual, independent from other people. Well, Stephen, what else? That, that's one of the fires, I think, a very appropriate one. You have another one here out of the seven that you'd like to highlight this morning? I love to highlight the, the story of friendship, uh, the fire of friendship. Uh, I believe that most men, and you know this very well, all of us who study these things are aware uh, that that male loneliness is a plague in our mm. time, that male suicide is at an all-time high. When we do the psychological postmortem on why men are killing themselves, often the suicide notes say there's not a man anywhere who even knows that I'm alive. There's not a man active in my life. I don't know another man who cares or knows about me. And I'll tell you, that that's, that is a tragic situation. And so I talk about uh, a couple of exemplary friendships throughout history that, that really are, are pregnant with meaning. And I, and I talk men through it, really some, some of the steps for how you can begin to open yourself up to relationships, uh, how significant they are, how we ought to be steel sharpening steel, uh, how we're made for significant male friendships. And when I'm walking around without my friends even near, their deposit in my life, the conversations we've had, the values they've helped reinforce in my life uh, ought to be changing me when I'm, when I'm literally walking alone somewhere in the world, uh, as I often am because I travel so much. And so that's the power of friendship. I want to see men ignited with that. And I've, and I've, I've seen many, many men, maybe they're even in men's groups, but they can't name a significant friend. And I want to see that change. And how do you do that, Stephen? I mean, let's say you're 53, 54 years old and you are experiencing the loneliness you, you describe, and especially in a time when we're so distant from one another because of, of COVID-19. Are there some simple steps that a guy could take to just say, hey, look, I really want to develop some friendships here. Where can I go for that? Well, most men are awash in a sea of casual relationships. Mm. And so what I do is teach them how to transform those relationships from just being casual, just being, you know, shoot hoops or maybe the occasional hamburger with nothing serious discussed. Uh, I teach them how to uh, bring those bring those relationships in some of them anyway into something significant. You know, all men need to know the art, for example, of the indirect connection. As you know, men don't bond by just sitting in a circle of, of chairs staring at each other and going, how are you feeling today, Joe? You know, that's going to make most men run away. Um, but, but instead, you know, when they do experiments with little boys and little girls, little girls face each other and say, I like your hair, and then they're friends forever. Little boys turn side to side and go, I bet I can beat you to that tree. I bet we can get Tommy to pull us in that wagon. I bet we can set that door on fire. And, and so these little boys are that we bond, males bond through doing things. So part of the art for that 53-year-old man, you, uh, 53-year-old man that you, you bring up uh, is that he learns how to begin to put, put some things together that allow for the indirect connection, work on the, the widow's yard or, or, or roof, uh, uh, you know, have a game party. Any idiot can order pizza during a football game. Uh, <laughs> you, you, know, you understand what I'm saying? Just create any kind of event, a beer after a basketball game, whatever. Uh, put pull guys together so they can hang out, talk, get to know each other indirectly first. That's how males bond. Then the deeper relationships will begin to surface as you say, "Hey, I've been reading a good book on manhood recently, and, and what it means to be a man. What, what, did you, what did your dads ever teach you, or who is the significant man in your life?" And certainly, and, and just like fishing, some guys will begin to bite. They'll begin to come closer. They'll begin to have that conversation. Before long, you're having significant relationships about noble manhood with men that you can go deeper with, and that's that's the art of it. The art is not to leave our relationships uh, at the ca- at the casual and insignificant level. Mm, Stephen, we have just about a minute left uh, or so. If, if you could fast forward into the future and say, "Boy, men really be." Began to get reignited in the ways described in the book. What would you hope to see in, in terms of the transformation of our society? 
Well, I think we've pretty much lost noble manhood as a societal theme in this generation. And so I think we can turn it around. And I think it's going to happen uh, not as men wait for the super conference or the super book or the big uh, you know movement led from, te- from a television show that makes it happen. But they turn and begin to network together. They turn and begin to work with each other. Uh, in a sense, uh, you know, taking the line from the famous Andy Griffith show, you know, where Barney is the sheriff and he suddenly gets in trouble and he goes, hey, we need to call the police. And somebody <laughs> says, we are the police. You know, uh, in a sense, we are the police. Uh, and we are the ones who are going to have to turn and change this thing. So if we'll begin to build the networks in our communities and in our family lines and in our churches, et cetera, uh, of men who are working on this, who are initiating the boys, who are encouraging each other and lighting each other's fires uh, for noble manhood, I think we can change a generation. I, I truly believe that. That's great stuff. Again, this is New York Times bestselling author Stephen Mansfield with the book Men on Fire. Stephen, I, I suppose that uh, is available in all the usual suspects, Amazon and everywhere else. This book is, is now absolutely, out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great to hear from you. Thank you so much for having me on the air. Yeah. Have a great day, Stephen. Thanks for joining us here. We'll be back in a moment here and wrap up hour one of Mornings with Carmen. Paul Perot, some great insights from Stephen Mansfield oh, this morning yeah. about the life of young boys, of men. I just think about a couple of my boys at home. I'm sure they'd love nothing more than for me to come home and let them burn something down. <laughs> I don't have anything to add to that. Yeah, I know. Just, if that's the initiation kids, into noble manhood, I'm yep. game. I can definitely get some scrap wood and we can have at it this morning. But again, appreciate the conversation. He certainly recognizes in his book some of what's missing and maybe some help mm-hmm. for men as well. That idea of friendship is so important. I, I think so, and he's right. I mean, you usually have to start at some level of side by side before you can turn yes. to each other so so true for for boys i know absolutely yeah some of my best friends were made as we'd go to sporting events together play golf together just hang out together in those ways so indirect conversation really important again you're going to want to catch that if you missed that from steven mansfield in his book man on fire we'll come back for hour two here in just a minute we're going to be joined first up on hour two by dr linda mintel and we'll talk about the disruption of routine thanks for listening to this podcast of mornings with carmen laburge from faith radio If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.